I love talking about the Trinity because, among other things, it is the unique Christian doctrine. There is no other group that believes in God who is three and one. There's many things that religions share with one another, not to say that they're all the same, you understand, but lots of religions have holy books. Ours is the only true holy one, you understand, but they have holy books. They have you know, leaders that everybody looks to and reveres. Many believe they have a way of salvation and a way to pay for sin, but it is only in the church of Jesus Christ that you have a triune God. Nobody else believes this. And I think that's something that we ought to revel in and boast in and be excited about, that our conception of God is the only conception of God that I know of that actually blows your mind. All the rest of them, you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I get that easily, right? But then when you say God is three and God is one, you go, okay, all right, slow down one more time, right? And uh, th this is something that we need to not lose uh, there, it's not that I think we're in danger of losing this doctrine as much as we are of not remembering why it's important. And it is important. A very common conception you get around the Trinity is, look, you're never going to get this. You heard this one? It's too hard. Just remember it, accept it, and then just move on. And I was even reviewing some of my own resources and books that I have about this. And it's remarkable how many of them say, we just have to chalk this up to the mystery and, and we can never fully understand it. Well, we can never fully understand lots of things that God does, but that doesn't mean that we can't grasp as much as has been revealed. I think that that is sometimes used, you know, the appeal to the mystery, as a cop-out to not do the hard work to understand what we do know. And I would say the dangers of losing this are too great, as we're going to discuss today, it is amazing to me, if you just consider at a very basic level, that one of the marks of almost every aberrant group that has come out of the church, every false doctrine, even if it has nothing to do initially with God's nature, is they start messing with the Trinity. And you might say, well, why? well, that doesn't even make a lot of sense. Because if that's who God really is, that's what Satan is going to work to do. We're going to spend a lot of time today hanging out with our friend Athanasius. Athanasius is one of the absolute top-tier heroes of church history. And we know lots of folks from church history, and most of them are, are closer to our own time, which just makes sense. But you've got to know who this guy is. I wish I could tell you his whole story today. Maybe we'll do that another time. But Athanasius had a nickname during his day, and the nickname was Latin, Contramundum, which means against the world. Because what happened, unfortunately, when the church and the, came under the protection of the Roman Empire, which initially was a good thing, right? We're not going to persecute you anymore. And in fact, we're going to make sure the whole empire knows about this and that we're not worshiping the false gods anymore. Wow, praise God. But Satan says, here's how I can twist that. And the emperors started to listen to the, the group called the Arians. A-R-I-A-N. This is not the racial group that you may have heard about. This is something different. It comes from a man named Arius. And he believed among other wacky things, that Jesus Christ was a created being and that he had been adopted into the Godhead and that the Holy Spirit was just a fancy way to talk about God's power. Now, at, to this time, the church didn't believe any of that. So like, you're crazy. We're not listening to this. But it, he became so popular, they had to start formalizing these things. And when that happened, you began to see debates in the church, as you might imagine, when you're trying to formulate a, a, a approved definition of who God is, accommodating all the scripture and all the, the testimony, which was still fresh in their minds. And the heretic emperors took advantage of this to push Arianism upon the church and drive out the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Orthodoxy, to drive out the understanding of the Trinity. Well, there's one guy that didn't put up with that, and his name was Athanasius. And there's, I mean, there's amazing stories about this guy. He was a rather, he was a bit of a bruiser because he's like, I, if you're going to stand up to the Roman Empire and say, you are not going to tell me what to do in my church, you've got to have a little bit of spunk. You know what I mean? And he did. He was, he was exiled five times. He would hide in the desert. All the monks loved him. So they would just like hide him in their cells. Like, oh, I don't know where he is. I haven't seen him lately. And uh, while he's in exile, he's writing these books and he's working out a doctrine and definition of the Trinity that the whole church can agree upon. Now that takes some thinking and some doing, does it not? 
So while he's doing this, the emperors are, are oppressing the church, forcing this false doctrine on. The problem was the church knew that that was false, but they couldn't together arrive at an understanding that everybody could agree on that didn't violate some piece of scripture. Athanasius works it out. And then when he is allowed back into the empire, ironically, this was by a guy named Julian, who was an emperor who wanted to go back to the pagan gods. He thinks, if I let, go, let this guy back, who was exiled by the Christian emperors, it's going to throw everything into chaos. Well, he gets back, and the first thing Athanasius does is calls a council. They agree upon a definition of the Trinity, and Arianism is dead. He's, he, I don't want to say he solved the problem, because we always knew who God was, but he was able to define it, outline it, and write it in such a way that all of God's people could say, there it is. You nailed it. And so what we have is something called the Athanasian Creed. This is something that he wrote down. This is what we believe. And we, we know about the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed focuses more on the work of salvation. The Athanasian Creed is about the definition of God. And we're going to read from it quite a bit today and talk about it. And... Uh, one of these days we'll do his whole story because it's very interesting. But here's the basic definition of the Trinity that comes from the creed that he gave us. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. One God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. There is only one substance of God. You may have also heard this called the essence of God of God. It means the same thing. There's only one substance. This means that in all of the universe, all of reality, there is only one being that has the characteristic of Godness. If you were to define yourself, one of your characteristics would be humanity. They are a man or a woman. You understand it's the same term. But you're never going to come to anyone other than Jehovah God and say has the characteristic of deity of Godness. There is only one substance. However, that trinity is in, or that unity is in trinity. There are three, we use the term persons within that one substance. You also may have heard the phrase hypostases, which is the Greek word. Jesus had a hypostatic union. It's the same idea. That one substance, three persons. That, that one God is three distinct personal subsistences. You are a single substance with a single person. Now, we might think, well, that's just the normal way of doing things. Actually, it's a lesser way of doing things. It's a shadow of the greatest thing, which is God, who is three persons in one substance. This creed is the only orthodox way to understand who God is as revealed to us in Scripture. And I have spent time before going through, why do we believe the Trinity? Well, we hold to the creed as defined, because somebody's already gone ahead and done the work of defining it for us. But all of it comes from the Scripture. It's very plain that there's one God. However, it's clear that Jesus is God, and so is the Holy Spirit, and so is God the Father. And yet they're not the same person, yet there's only one God. So how do we define this? We define it with this word, the Trinity. This is why you need to take the time to understand this. What often happens, I found, when somebody has a hard time with the doctrine of the Trinity, or if they have an objection, what you usually find is that, with all due respect, they are not very familiar with the actual doctrine of the Trinity. They've not actually taken the time uh, over and above the basic understanding of what it means to learn it. If you read through the whole Athanasian Creed, they've pretty much thought of everything. <laughs> Any objection you can come up with of, well, what about this or what about that? It's like, yeah, the Bible answers that and we've, we've defined it this way. Which is why today we're going to take some time to get into some of the nuts and bolts of this. And we're going to try to understand this and not just say, I don't get it. Must not be true. How about, I don't get it. I must not be as smart as I think I am. <laughs> That's a much better answer, isn't it? And before we dive into these details, I've given you the definition, but I want to focus on a specific aspect. Let me ask you this. Some of you are groaning, oh, it's going to be one of these. It's like being back in school. Uh, what about this? I, this isn't going to meet me where I am, man. I just need to, you know, let me ask you this. The Bible says to love the Lord your God among other things with all your what? Your mind. How does a person worship God with their mind? You ever think about that? Well, I mean, you believe things, right? We believe and we understand 
And sometimes God gives us things that are a little harder to understand than others. And some things, in fact, that bring us up to the absolute limit of what a human being can conceive. And the way you worship God with your mind is, first of all, to believe it and accept it, which I assume most of you have, but also to seek to understand. So, well, I, just, I wasn't in school very much. I'm not talking about algebra, guys. I'm talking about God. You love God, don't you? Jesus died on the cross for you. God gave you this book. It's time to learn and worship God with your mind in honor of God, which is what we are going to do today. So we have our definition of the Trinity. Let's talk about this specific aspect I want to get into today. And we have to start by talking about something I've hit a lot. I just want to remind you of it. When we talk about the Trinity, it's very easy to say the wrong thing. And sometimes I think that's why people don't like to do it. Because like every time I try to explain it, somebody tells me, oh, no, don't say that. That's heresy. Well, we can take the time to be gracious with each other here. But there's a distinction in Trinitarian study between the ontology of the Trinity and the economy of the Trinity. Ontos is a Greek word that means being or nature. So when we say ontology, that is a discussion of the being or nature of God, the essential attributes of who God is. The economy is the outworking of God, the works of God, the roles that the members of the Trinity play, the works that they do. And there's a distinction between how we discuss them, being versus operation. And you need to be careful that you do not confuse these things because remember, we're talking about something that is very, indeed, mysterious and right on the limits of what we can know. And what we're trying to do is to define God in such a way that accommodates for all of our scriptures. Today, we're going to focus on the ontology of God. We're going to answer this question today. What makes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who they are? Why is God Father God? Why is God the Son, the Son of God? Why is the Holy Spirit who He is? They are one in substance and one in nature, and that's a whole other study to talk about the oneness and the unity of who God is, right? We just did this actually not long ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They are one in substance and in nature, but they are not the same. The persons are not the same as one another. God is not, God the Father is not the Son, and God the Spirit is not God the Father. They are distinct from one another. By the way, don't ever use the word separate when we're talking about the Trinity. Distinct is the best one to use. As the Creed states, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now when we say, okay, what makes God the Father different from the Spirit, different from the Son? Usually what we start to do is talk about God's economy. We talk about the works that the Trinity does. So we say, well, you know, the Father is the one who oversees creation, who predestines and calls men to salvation. You know, he's kind of the, the big boss is kind of how we think of God the Father, right? And the Son, of course, is the one that was made incarnate and died for our sins and rose from the dead and he's going to return to judge the world. That's the Son. And the Spirit is the one that indwells us and empowers us and draws us and seals us for salvation. That's all right. That's all very good. But what you're discussing is the economy of the Trinity. You're talking about what they do. You're talking about the works that they do, their operations. But what we're going to learn today, the operations of the Trinity speak to the distinctions in the nature of God as well. God the Son did not come and die on the cross just because, well, I, it was, might as well have been me, could just as easily have been the Father, just as easily the Son, the Spirit. That's not the case. It needed to be the Son. The Holy Spirit does what He does, not just because, well, it could have been any of us, but I'll just do it this time, I guess, right? Like you're just drawing straws for the day. Because that speaks to who the Spirit is in His nature. I'm talking today about the relationships of origin within the Trinity, the relationships of origin. What makes the three persons of the Trinity distinct from one another? It is their relationships of origin. Now, this might seem like an obscure topic, but when we get to the, into this, you're going to start to see why if we lose this, we really start to lose something. Here's how Athanasius describes this. What makes the Father, Son, and Spirit distinct? Their relationships of origin. He says, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. 
We're going to look at all of that, each piece of that, in detail. So don't worry if you missed it. The point he's trying to make is that they are distinct in their relationships of origin. And this is actually a subject that some modern theologians, and even guys that, as I like to say, ought to know better, are starting to say, you know, if you don't agree with this, it's really not such a big deal. And the reason they say that, I think, is a couple of things. Number one is out of pride. They're not willing to accept what the church has believed for thousands of years. There's certain things you don't mess with, you know what I mean? You don't get into 2020 and say, you know what, the way they describe the Trinity, I guess we can probably change that. Uh, no, man, that's kind of like settled. You know, we're not going back and relitigating this one. People died over this. All right? I think it's pride, but also I think sometimes it's an unwillingness of people to think here. And I say, this just seems a little unnecessary. Well, they then have to explain, then how is the Son, the Spirit, and the Father distinct from one another? And they usually will refer to their works. But okay, is that the only difference? If you lose this, this is either to separate the Son and the Spirit from the Father, which if you separate them, now you're getting into tritheism, which is polytheism, and that is simply not the case or to erase the distinctions between the three, that they're really all the same. And that starts to drift you towards, again, having just a single monad as God, or even modalism, that sometimes God's the Father, and sometimes he's the Spirit, sometimes he's, no, no, he's not. But if you don't have this doctrine, you can't stand on it scripturally. It creates this meaningless sameness about the Trinity that does not explain what the scripture shows us. One of these days, we've got to do a message called Bible Passages That Make No Sense If You Don't Believe in the Trinity. That would be a fun message to think. Jesus' baptism would be the first one. Now, we have our Trinitarian guardrails up. Athanasius has told us we don't confound the persons, meaning we need to keep them distinct from each other, but not dividing the substance, not cutting it so finely that they, end, they start to drift apart from one another. Not falling into those common errors, but seeking to understand these relationships of origin. You know, I also like to read other books, not just theology. And uh, I'm actually currently reading a science fiction book where they're trying to talk about four-dimensional space. Now, we know about three dimensions, right? We, you know, height, width, and, height, width, and depth. But in this book, they're trying to, you know, they want to have aliens that can move into 4D space. It's hardly important. What they try to explain is, like, if you are in 2D, the idea of three-dimensional, three dimensions is absolutely incomprehensible to you. And if you're in three dimensions, say, what if there was another one? What if you, you took this that we're in and you added another dimension to it? We're like, I don't even know if I quite understand that. But mathematically, scientists can kind of approach this and say, you know, this actually is technically understandable. But as you think about it, it kind of takes a minute. Like, okay, back up again. Where were we? And I, I was reading through that. I'm like, this is so funny because this is sometimes how I feel trying to talk about the Trinity. This is something that... At first blush, is like, that can't possibly be the case. Then we look at the scripture and say, okay, it is the case. Then you try to understand it, and you're like, okay, my mental circuits are starting to fry a little bit here. This is tricky. What I'm trying to say is it's not beyond your comprehension. You can at least learn the definitions and move forward. So let's talk about these relationships of origin. What makes the Father, Son, and Spirit distinct? What makes them who they are within the Godhead? Let's begin by talking about God the Father. God the Father is usually the one we mean, and especially in the Bible too, when you just say God, especially when Jesus talks about God or the Holy Spirit and God, it's usually a reference to the Father. Now, what did Athanasius say for us? The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The first person of the Godhead, the first person of the Trinity is the Father. Jesus tells us that the Father has life in himself. That is, he is not dependent for his existence upon anyone, even within the Trinity. This whole discussion is going to take place within the one substance. So all of that truth is, is remaining. But this is important to know. The Father is neither made, nor created, nor begotten. Speaking in terms of timelessness here, we're going to use language that sounds like it's time-bound, but it's not because we're talking about God. That God is the head. The Father is the source of the Trinity. Now, this could imply, well, if that father is, is alone, and then someday along came the son and along came the spirit. That's not true. The father is not and never has been alone. He is now and always has been with the son and the spirit. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? 
However, in terms of his relationship of origin, how does he relate to the other two? And how does that speak to his origin? The father finds it within himself. And that will make more sense as we move on to the other two. This is reflected in the works that God does. God's ontology is reflected in his economy. That God the Father is the sovereign. He's the decider. He's the one who grants authority. He's the one who will receive authority back on the final day. Jesus said, I've come from God and I'm going back to God. All authority has been given to Jesus and he must rule and reign until all his enemies are under his feet. And then he'll return that authority back to the Father. That reveals to us a little something about who God is in his nature. That his relationship of origin is that he is the source, that he is alone in his origin, but not in his nature. Now, other religions just stop here. There's an uncreated God, bada bing, bada boom, there you go. That's Islam, that's Judaism, that's most people's common conception of just having one God. Polytheistic religions don't even get that sophisticated. They just say, oh yeah, God's pop in and out all the time. Well, we're not even going to get into that. But the Bible shows us that there's more to God, as should be expected. Like We hear that and go, that's pretty straightforward. I don't know if straightforward is the way I would describe the nature of God, would you? If it is, it makes us go, did we just invent this? Because if we, when we invent things, they're, e- they're easy for us to understand. When we're talking about something that is beyond our comprehension, it ought to stretch us a bit. So to help us understand what I mean when I say the Father is not created nor begotten, that he f- has life in himself, let's look at how he relates to God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. When the Logos, when the Word of God, the second person of the Godhead became a man, he took on him, upon himself the name Jesus Christ. So I'm going to use those words interchangeably here. Here's what Athanasius tells us. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. You see the distinction? The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten, and he is made of none, right? He finds his origin in nobody. The Son is different. The Son finds his origin within the Father, but he is not made, he's not created, but we call this being begotten. The Son is begotten by the Father. This is what is called, here's the name of the doctrine, the eternal generation of the Son. That Jesus Christ has ever and always been eternally begotten by His Father. Now notice this qualification. When we use the word eternal, we mean lasting forever, never has been a time when it was not this way. The Son was not made nor created. There was no moment in either now or eternity past where the Son of God popped into being. This was the rallying cry of of, uh, orthodoxy during the days of Athanasius. There was no time when he was not. Right? In the beginning was the Word. Right? In the beginning, there he is. So we're not discussing here when Jesus began. When Jesus started. Some people have tried to even postulate this evolution of God. Well, there was one, and then there was two, and then there was three. No, 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 not at all. And we say, well, wait a minute. You say begotten. That means to have a child. And when children are born, they begin. Yes, when you and I beget children, they have a birthday. They have a day where they came into existence. And even if you want to be a little more technical, the day of conception, they came into existence. But Jesus is eternal. Your son or daughter has all the same attributes of humanity that you do. Likewise, the Son of God has all the attributes of God the Father, which includes eternity. Are you following me on this? That there's never been a moment where Jesus was not. We call this being begotten. What it means is it describes his his source or his origin and how he relates to God the Father. He finds his source, his origin, in God the Father, which is why we use those names to describe our own children. Remember, like I said before with the three persons thing, don't take humanity and project that back on God. The way we have children is a picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, not the other way around. 
which means the way God and the Father and the Son relate to each other is going to be higher and deeper and more wonderful, and ours is only going to be a carnal reflection of that. Just how marriage is a symbol of Christ and the church, so also childbearing is a picture of God the Father and God the Son. The Son finds his, or, his source and his origin in the Father. John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. They share that quality of eternal aseity, eternal existence, yet the Son receives that from the Father. That's the distinction. Jesus is one with the Father, John 10.30, yet his distinct relationship of origin is that of a son. I get so revved up talking about this. I hope you're tracking with me here. This is what we mean when we say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, that word is actually under debate right now. This is the Greek word monogenes, and it's a compound word, and the debate is over which words are being compounded here. Mono in Greek is, means like what mono means in English. It means alone, right, or only. Now, this, this other part, genes, can come from one of two different words. Genao is the word to beget, right, to generate. It's a similar where we get the English word. That's the traditional understanding. But many people today are, are looking at this word, and they're saying, I probably should be ginemai, which just means to be, or to become. It's a very simple word in Greek. So they say, well, really, it's not specifically saying only begotten. What he's saying is one and only. So this is why, and this is actually one of my, my few complaints with some of the modern Bible translations, of which I'm a big champion and a big fan, is that they have decided not to translate only begotten, but to say my one and only son. Now, you can imply that, but I would prefer it to be laid out basically in the text. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I think this is D.A. Carson that made this point first. Even if it is ginemai, which means to be or become, my one and only son, my only son that began. Well, if you're using the language of son, then for something to be or become implies that begetting relationship. And also, all the early church fathers, when they were debating this subject, were talking about it like it was begetting, because they came up with this language. And I would think that 1,700 years later, we have less insight into what the Greek of the time meant than they did back then. However, this is the creed, the only begotten Son, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And even those that hold to that the translation ought to be one and only still believe in the eternal generation of the Son. They just believe you don't use this word to describe it, which I think is just like splitting hairs. What's the big deal here? What this means for us is that when we say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, this is not just a metaphor. This is not just a description of what Jesus did when he came to the earth. It is not so much talking about Jesus' virgin birth as it is his eternal relationship to God the Father. It's descriptive of their eternal relationship of origin. This is borne out in the way that Jesus works. His ontology is reflected in his economy. That he was the one who was sent to do the work of the Father. Read through the Gospel of John, guys, over and over and over again. I only do what my Father says to do. I only say what my Father tells me to say. I'm only going to do what he's done. I'm trying to glorify my Father, to bring men back to the Father, all under God's authority. Like a good son would be. Christ has always existed as God's Son, eternally begotten. Sometimes we use the word filiation, which comes from the Latin word for son, philos, right? And what we're talking about here is within this, the divine substance which they share, right? There's only one substance. Christ is eternally begotten into his distinct person. This distinction does not imply separation, meaning that they're totally set apart from one another, or... Hear me on this one, subordination. Well, if the Son finds his origin in the Father, doesn't that mean that the Father is above the Son? No, because they are one. They are equal to one another. In the way that they work, there will be submission, and in fact, mutual submission between the members of the Godhead. But in their terms of origin, Jesus Christ has always been one with the Father, equal to the Father, and worshipped alongside the Father. 
but his distinct nature comes from being the son of the father. If we lose this, what's the problem with believing this? If you don't believe this, then one, you have one of two options to go. Well, I don't believe the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Then you either have to believe that Jesus was created, is the first option. Well, if he has not always been the Son of the Father, that means at one point he became the Son of the Father, which means he was not always one with the Father, which means when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he was blaspheming. You have maybe adoptionism is an idea that, well, Jesus was a good man, and then when he ascended to heaven, he became God. That's what the Greeks believe about like, people like Hercules and Theseus. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's why Jesus can say, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. So, create, was he created? No, he was eternally begotten. If you still don't like that, here's the other thing you can drift into. The erasure of the Son of God. That look, God is three in one, I believe that, but this whole deal of being eternally begotten, it just feels a little iffy to me. Then what you end up with is members one, two, three, who have titles that mean absolutely nothing, that are essentially the same, and that's when you start messing with the gospel. Neither of which the scriptures will allow. The Son has always existed, out of necessity. It was not an act of creation for the Son to come about. It was not as though God said, I'd like to have a Son. Boom, and there was the Son. He has always possessed this relationship. Only He could have died for sins, as was ordained before the foundation of the world. All right, if you understand the eternal generation of the Son, at least get the definition now. You'll work on the understanding bit later. Once you get this, understanding the Holy Spirit is easy because it's very, very similar. Here's what Athanasius tells us. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created, so he's eternal, right? Nor begotten, different from the Son, but proceeding, proceeding. The Holy Spirit, we describe what is called the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we use that word proceed or to, you know, the procession? Because the word spirit, pneuma, means breath. So you use, when you're talking about the Trinity, language of being breathed out or spirated is a word you'll see sometimes, like respiration, right? Spirated, breathed out from the Father and the Son. Eternally so. Functionally, this is the same as the Son's relationship of origin, but it is not identical. This is what gives the Holy Spirit his unique divine identity. This is what makes him the Holy Spirit and not a second son. Once again, though, he is neither made nor created. In all of this, I can't stress it enough because I know how easy it is. We are not speaking in terms of time. We are speaking in terms of relationship within the eternal, timeless Godhead. The Holy Spirit, then, proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son finds his origin in the Father. The Father finds his origin in himself. The Holy Spirit finds his origin in the Father and the Son, both. It is an eternal relationship that does not diminish his deity in the slightest. John 15, 26, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, the Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. There it is. He proceeds from the Father, just like the Son was begotten of the Father. It, it winds up at more or less the same place with a, another member of the Godhead, but it is distinct and different, right? To beget and to breathe out, both are similar in that something is coming out of a person, but they are very different things. Breathing is not the same thing as childbirth. Am I right, ladies? One is a little different from the other one. Now, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, believe it or not, this, you might be sitting there thinking, I know there's at least one of you going, why are we talking about this? How does this affect anything? Do you know that this very thing was the issue that caused the church to split in half a thousand years ago? Why do we have Western meaning Catholic and Protestant churches, and Eastern Orthodox Church. You know what that was over? This issue right here. This is called the Great Schism. In 1054 AD, the church divided. Now, there were a lot of issues that were behind this, a lot of political issues, because Western Rome was, you know, angry with Eastern Rome, which became the Byzantine Empire when the Western Empire collapsed. 
Also, the, the bishop of Rome was starting to assert authority to himself and go by that name, Pope, which we still use to this day. And the Eastern churches didn't like it. It was like, who do you think you are just to step up and start asserting this authority? All that was behind it. But the proximate cause, the issue that tipped the scale was the procession of the Holy Spirit. Because the Nicene Creed, which had been agreed upon in the days of Athanasius, it had been updated several times, usually in response to other heresies. For example, at the Council of Constantinople, they added more information about the Holy Spirit, because once they worked out everything with Jesus, heretics came along and started saying messed up things about the Holy Spirit. So this was done. But there came a time when the church added the word filioque, Latin word. One little word that split the world in half. Because it says in the Nicene Creed, and we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And then the Western Church added, and from the Son, which is the Latin filioque. And the Eastern Church and the Western Church split, and they remain split to this day. So lest you think this is not a big deal, it's a very big deal. It is an idea that literally split the world. So point being, pay attention. <laughs> the West looked at this and concluded from Scripture, okay, yes, we know the Holy Spirit finds His origin in the Father, but how is it that the Son can send the Spirit, pour out the Spirit, command the Spirit, be served and testified to by the Holy Spirit if there is not a similar relationship there? Now, the debate became the Eastern churches say when Jesus sent the Spirit, that's just the economy of the Trinity. That's just the work of Jesus. The Western churches came in and said, no, this speaks to the ontology of the Trinity. That This is actually part of the nature of the Son. And it's very difficult to disagree with them. We are Western Christians, and we believe this because you look at it and you're like, kind of your move, Eastern church here. You've got to answer this question. So, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is reflected also in His operations and the things that He does. What does the Spirit do? He testifies to the Son and communicates the knowledge of the Father. He draws men to Jesus, seals them for salvation, and delivers them to heaven. He sanctifies us and gives us the knowledge of God and delivers us unto Christ as a pure bride. But let these economic reflections meaning these things we know about the works of the Spirit, never lead us to infer rank in the Trinity. I know I'm saying a lot of the same things again, because when you're talking about the Trinity, you've got to have like bumpers like in a bowling alley to make sure you don't go off in one bad direction or another. By saying the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, this does not imply that the Spirit is lesser than the Father or the Son. That's impossible to say. Why? Because they are one with one another. That's when you start to divide the substance. Same thing, you can't say Jesus is less than the Father or even greater than the Holy Spirit. They are equal in rank to one another, even if when they begin to work, they mutually submit to one another. We talked about that two years ago on Trinity Sunday. If you want to go take a listen to that, it has an awful lot of implications for how we live our own lives. Like the Son, the Holy Spirit has his source of origin in another, but he never began. There was never a moment when now there's a Holy Spirit and he will never end. Within the divine substance, within that oneness and that threeness, the Holy Spirit is eternally spirited, breathed out by Father and Son. He is a distinct person, a personal hypostasis numbered with the others. So we have the Father. Let's get the basics down here, okay? The Father, who has his origin within himself. The Son, who is eternally begotten by the Father. And the Spirit, who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. These are relationships of origin. We are discussing relationships of origin. What in the nature of God makes Father, Son, and Spirit distinct from one another? They are all uncreated. They are all unmade. They are eternal and they are inseparable. That's not affected by anything I'm talking about today. But what this gives us is insight into the nature of the threeness within the oneness of God. To summarize everything we've said, going back to our friend Athanasius, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. 
The Son is of the Father alone, neither made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. That is what the churches have believed and understood and recited for 1,700 years. So after you hearing it in one morning, do not then presume to say, I don't really think I believe that. You don't have that option. This is what has been handed down from the very beginning and was hard fought and hard won. That God the Father is what is sometimes called the monarch of the Trinity. He has life in himself and grants life to the other three. God the Son, eternally begotten by the Father, receiving life in himself and spirating the Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, receiving that same life in himself. That description that I just gave is what makes them who they are. That's why they do what they do, not the other way around. This does not mean that God the Father came first. It doesn't mean that the Son and the Spirit are unnecessary. This does not mean there is rank or subordination in the Godhead. As Athanasius confirms, he gives, us, you know, he gives us the doctrine, and then the next section of the creed, he says, now here's all the things that we don't believe. It's important to know, because heretics were running rampant. They had taken over the empire. So there is one father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits, right? Because only one of them is eternally begotten, and only one of them eternally proceeds, and only one of them is life in himself. And in this trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Is it okay to worship the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Is it okay to pray to Jesus and not the Father? Yes. Because they are co-eternal and co-equal with one another. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Going back, guys, almost 1,700 years. And it's amazing. You read that and you go, wow, that's a pretty neat way of putting it. That kind of answers all the objections and uh, sort of thought of everything, didn't you? Yeah, they did. Which is why we're taking the time today to remember this and stretch those mental muscles a little bit. For thousands of years, the church has stood on this doctrine, which is Scripture rightly understood. If you take this Bible and say, I'm going to start over and try to figure out who God is by myself, you will arrive at the same place. Okay, there's only one God, but there's three who are called God. They're not the same, and yet they're one. It's called Trinity. Well, what makes them distinct from one another? Well, they do certain things, but that doesn't describe who they are as people. Who are they in their, in their being, in their nature? Well, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds, and the Father has his origin in himself. That's this doctrine. I know this is tricky to understand, but listen, guys, you can get this. We understand the oneness pretty easy. One God, got it. No problem. But the threeness can throw us. We can understand the three, we can understand the one. But the minute we try to say, no, not just three or one, not just one in three, not just three in one, but three and one together, that's when we start to scratch our heads. My, my son Colton, when he was little, I don't know where he picked this up, but when I asked him a question he didn't know, he would scratch his head like this. Hmm. You go, hmm. It was the cutest thing. That's how I feel sometimes talking about some of this stuff. These three are distinct within the Godhead. What makes the Father, Son, and Spirit distinct from one another? Their relationships of origin, generation, procession. And that is then reflected in their external operations. Like I said, this is like discussing 4D space. But if you simply state the truth, learn to repeat it, reflect on it later, you'll start to understand. And you'll start to realize that if you mess with any piece of this, you have parts of the scriptures that are going to fall to the side. So let me give you one big major lesson about why these doctrines matter. If we do not believe that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, that the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, and that the Father has his origin within himself, if we do not believe in those eternal ontological distinctions, we have no assurance that the gospel is real and possible. If Jesus Christ is not distinct within the Godhead, eternally begotten of the Father, then 
He's merely a created being. And if Jesus is only a created being, who is he to die for your sins? No man can ransom the life of another. No angel could die for you. Well, God is going to make, a, make another God and bring him into his relationship with himself. That doesn't work either. First of all, because God does not share his glory and will not share his glory with another that he made himself. But also, they're talking about an eternal crime of sin that needs an eternal punishment. So only an eternal sacrifice could pay for it. And if the Spirit is not likewise distinct within the Godhead, how is he supposed to communicate Christ to us? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, only the Spirit of a person can understand the depths of the Spirit of a person. And that's why the Holy Spirit knows everything there is to know about God the Father, knows everything there is to know about God the, uh, God the Son, and can teach you about it, can come to you and bring that salvation to you. If we're just talking about the power of God, there is no personal presence of God with you. God is just sending things your way. And sometimes that's how we treat the Holy Spirit. Like, well, we've got the book. What do we need the Spirit for? Wouldn't you rather have the one that inspired the book living within you and communicating all of it to you? If he's just somebody that was made some angel, then he's not going to come and take up residence in your heart. That's called possession. That's not what we have. We have the indwelling power of God himself. And if they are not... Okay, so that's, that's the eternity of each one, right? But let's talk about this distinction now. If they are not distinct, not just in their works, but in their ontology then first of all, Scripture is nonsensical. Who was Jesus praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right? Who descended upon Jesus and drove him off into the wilderness? Who is Jesus going to present us to when we get to heaven? This is, this, you know, Scripture just starts to fall apart. But more than anything else, the cross begins to fail. Jesus Christ died on the cross and received the wrath of whom? Exactly. If it's all one, who's pouring out wrath on Jesus? Who's leading him to the cross? Who's raising him from the dead? Are you saying that God is on his own, coming to earth, dying, pouring out wrath upon himself, raising himself up, presenting himself to himself? This is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that there was the Word who was with God and was God, just as there was a Spirit who was with God and was God along with God the Father, and that if Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, He can't die for your sins. If the Father is not there to pour out wrath upon the Son, then your wrath has not been covered. If the Holy Spirit cannot communicate this to you, then you can't receive it. You need the Trinity, and you need distinct identities for the Father, Son, and the Spirit for the Gospel to make any sense or to work. But on top of that, guys, this has been Christian theology for centuries. Brilliant, worshipful believers fought and thought and died for this doctrine. Any objection you can raise to the idea of the Trinity, I guarantee you it has been raised already. And they had a council about it, and they wrote a bunch of books about it, and they've come to conclusions. And you go back and look. This was not something that was invented. This is not something that they said, you know what would be a really kind of cool idea? Like, what if, like, a three-in-one God? What they did, go, go read it. It's all there. It's all available for you. They're staring at Scripture and saying, we know this is true. How are we to reconcile all of this in a way that the people can understand? And they arrived at the doctrine of the Trinity. We cannot cast this aside carelessly. It just frightens me when people want to do that. I remember one man that came to a meeting one time and, you know, I, no one called him on this. And in hindsight, I definitely should have, but I was much younger at the time. And he referred to the idea of the eternal generation of the sun as heresy. That's a heretical doctrine. It's not even in the Bible. I'm like, who's the heretic exactly? Because we've believed this for 1,700 years and now you've figured it out all of a sudden? We're so arrogant, aren't we? We think, well, yeah, we know so much more now about like, you know, science and planets and stuff. So let's take a second look at the Trinity. Now let's not be that prideful. Let's receive these things in love and say, thank you, God, that somebody has already gone to the trouble to do this and then hold on to it dearly. This teaches us that Jehovah God is truly the everlasting God. The everlasting one. The everlasting three as well. Even more than that simple sentence implies that there is eternal relationship between them. 
And it also reminds us, as Jesus said, that just as the Son has been given life by the Father, so also now He can give life to you and to me. John 17, 22. We always read these verses in the context of unity in the body of Christ. I would respectfully offer to you, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's praying and He says to the Father, The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Check this out. I just described the relationship of the Father and the Son, right? Of the Son eternally begotten of the Father, that they are together, that they are one with one another, yet there is, there is this amazing Threeness in addition to the oneness. Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to make my relationship with you like my relationship with the Father. Just think about that for a minute. What, when we say, oh, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that does not just mean that you're comfortable praying. <laughs> that does not just mean that you love the person of Jesus. It means that you have been granted life that will last forever as the Son has been granted life by His Father from eternity past. That because there is humanity with the deity of Christ, you are connected to that humanity, which means you are brought into an eternal relationship with the Trinity. That's salvation, man. That's glorification. That's being brought into a place that you certainly don't deserve to be. He bent all of His eternal power to save your soul and to invite you into this relationship. You're never going to be God. You're never going to become part of God, but you are going to be in the deepest, most abiding, most supernatural relationship to God that could possibly be conceived. Because the Son took humanity into Himself, we are welcome into His heavenly presence. We receive the same love that He receives from His own Father. That's why Jesus has everything that the Father has given to me, I'm giving to you. Why? Because he says, I'm duplicating that relationship with you. And it's duplicated in time, it's duplicated in flesh, which means it is lesser, of course, than the one that he has, but it's going to amount to almost the same thing. That whatever God has, you can have. Whatever Jesus inherits, you inherit. Romans chapter 8 teaches us that. And it all comes to us by the Holy Spirit. We have a Trinity-shaped gospel, Christians. And the way that you receive this salvation is to believe in what Jesus has done on the cross. Repent of your sins. And then Jesus says, and then those who believe in me and love me, I will send the Holy Spirit. And he will bring the Father to you. And will love you and dine with you and have a relationship with you. This relationship that has lasted from eternity past bent heaven and earth to invite you and me into that relationship. How amazing is that? Can you see why we don't lose these things? Because not only does it make us feel real smart when we talk about it, it communicates the love and the blessing of the gospel in a way that we never understood before. So as Athanasius said, he therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Three and one. The Father, on his own in his origin, who eternally begets the Son, and together with the Son eternally Spirits the Holy Spirit. That's what makes them who they are. They're eternal relationships of origin. And we're going to also share in that relationship one day when we all get to heaven.